Section 17 of Three Essays on Religion. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording by HearHis.com. Three Essays on Religion by John Stuart Mill. Theism. Section 9. Part 5. General Result. From the result of the preceding examination of the evidences of theism, and theism being presupposed, of the evidences of any revelation, it follows that the rational attitude of a thinking mind towards the supernatural, whether in natural or in revealed religion, is that of skepticism, as distinguished from belief on the one hand and from atheism on the other including, in the present case, under atheism, the negative as well as the positive form of disbelief in a God, that is, not only the dogmatic denial of his existence, but the denial that there is any evidence on either side, which for most practical purposes amounts to the same thing as if the existence of a God had been disproved. If we are right in the conclusions to which we have been led by the preceding inquiry, there is evidence, but insufficient for proof, and amounting only to one of the lower degrees of probability. The indication given by such evidence, as there is, points to the creation, not indeed of the universe, but of the present order of it by an intelligent mind, whose power over the materials was not absolute, whose love for his creatures was not his sole actuating inducement, but who nevertheless desired their good. The notion of a providential government by an omnipotent being for the good of his creatures must be entirely dismissed. Even of the continued existence of the Creator we have no other guarantee than that he cannot be subject to the law of death, which affects terrestrial beings, since the conditions that produce this liability, wherever it is known to exist, are of his creating. That this being, not being omnipotent, may have produced a machinery falling short of his intentions, and which may require the occasional interposition of the Maker's hand, is a supposition not in itself absurd nor impossible, though in none of the cases in which such interposition is believed to have occurred is the evidence such as could possibly prove it. It remains a simple possibility, which those may dwell on to whom it yields comfort to suppose that blessings which ordinary human power is inadequate to attain may come not from extraordinary human power, but from the bounty of an intelligence beyond the human, and which continuously cares for man. The possibility of a life after death rests on the same footing, of a boon which this powerful being, who wishes well to man, may have the power to grant, and which, if the message alleged to have been sent by him was really sent, he has actually promised. The whole domain of the supernatural is thus 
removed from the region of belief, and in that, for anything we can see, it is likely always to remain, for we can hardly anticipate either that any positive evidence will be acquired of the direct agency of divine benevolence in human destiny, or that any reason will be discovered for considering the realization of human hopes on that subject as beyond the pale of possibility. It is now to be considered whether the indulgence of hope in a region of imagination merely in which there is no prospect that any probable grounds of expectation will ever be obtained is irrational and ought to be discouraged as a departure from the rational principle of regulating our feelings as well as opinions strictly by evidence. This is a point which different thinkers are likely, for a long time at least, to decide differently, according to their individual temperament. The principles which ought to govern the cultivation and the regulation of the imagination, which a view on the one hand of preventing it from disturbing the rectitude of the intelligent, and the right direction of the actions and will, and on the other hand of employing it as a power for increasing the happiness of life and giving elevation to the character, are a subject which has never yet engaged the serious consideration of philosophers, though some opinion on it is implied in almost all modes of thinking on human character and education. And I expect that this will hereafter be regarded as a very important branch of study for practical purposes, and the more in proportion as the weakening of positive beliefs respecting states of existence superior to the human leaves the imagination of higher things less provided with material from the domain of supposed reality. To me, it seems that human life small and confined as it is, and as, considering merely in the present, it is likely to remain even when the progress of material and moral improvement may have freed it from the greater part of its present calamities, stands greatly in need of any wider range and greater height of aspiration for itself and its destination, which the exercise of imagination can yield to it without running counter to the evidence of fact, and that it is a part of wisdom to make the most of any, even small, probabilities on the subject which furnish imagination with any footing to support itself upon. And I am satisfied that the cultivation of such a tendency in the imagination, provided it goes on pari passo with the cultivation of severe reason, has no necessary tendency to pervert the judgment, but that it is possible to form a perfectly sober estimate of the evidences on both sides of a question, and yet to let the imagination dwell by preference on those possibilities which are at once the most comforting and the most improving, without in the least degree overrating the solidarity of the grounds for expecting that these rather than any others will be the possibilities actually realized. Though this is not in the number of the practical maxims 
handed down by tradition and recognized as rules for the conduct of life, a great part of the happiness of life depends upon the tacit observance of it. What, for instance, is the meaning of that which is always accounted one of the chief blessings of life, a cheerful disposition? What but the tendency, either from constitution or habit, to dwell chiefly on that brighter side of the present and of the future? If every aspect, whether agreeable or odious, of everything, ought to occupy exactly the same place in our imagination, which it fills in fact, and therefore ought to fill in our deliberate reason, what we call a cheerful disposition would be but one of the forms of folly, on par except in agreeableness with the opposite disposition in which the gloomy and painful view of all things is habitually predominant. But it is not found in practice that those who take life cheerfully are less alive to rational prospects of evil or danger, and more careless of making due provision against them than other people. The tendency is rather the other way, for a hopeful disposition gives a spur to the faculties and keeps all the active energies in good working order. When imagination and reason receive each of its appropriate culture, they do not succeed in usurping each other's prerogatives. It is not necessary for keeping up our conviction that we must die, that we should be always brooding over death. It is far better that we should think no further about what we cannot possibly avert than is required for observing the rules of prudence in regard to our own life and that of others, and fulfilling whatever duties devolve upon us in contemplation of the inevitable event. The way to secure this is not to think perpetually of death, but to think perpetually of our duties and the rule of life. The true rule of practical wisdom is not that of making all the aspects of things equally predominant in our habitual contemplations, but of giving the greatest prominence to those of their aspects which depend on, or can be modified by, our own conduct. In things which do not depend on us, it is not solely for the sake of a more enjoyable life that the habit is desirable of looking at things and at mankind by preference on their pleasant side. It is also in order that we may be able to love them better and work with more heart for their improvement. To what purpose, indeed, should we feed our imagination? with the unlovely aspect of persons and things. All unnecessary dwelling upon the evils of life is at best a useless expenditure of nervous force. And when I say unnecessary, I mean all that is not necessary either in the sense of being unavoidable or in that of being needed for the permanence of our duties and for preventing our sense of the reality of those evils from becoming speculative and dim. But if it is often waste of strength to dwell on the evils of life, on its meannesses and basenesses, it is necessary to be aware of them, but 
to live in their contemplation makes it scarcely possible to keep up oneself a higher tone of mind. The imagination and feelings become tuned to a lower pitch, degrading instead of elevating associations become connected with the daily objects and incidences of life, and give their color to the thoughts, just as associations of sensuality do to those who indulge freely in that sort of contemplations. Men often have felt what it is to have had their imaginations corrupted by one class of ideas, and I think they must have felt with the same kind of pain how the poetry is taken out of the things fullest of it, by mean associations, as when a beautiful air that had been associated with highly poetical words is heard sung with trivial and vulgar ones. All these things are said to be mere illustration of the principle that in the regulation of the imagination, literal truth of facts is not the only thing to be considered. Truth is the province of reason, and it is by the cultivation of the rational faculty that provision is made for its being known always, and thought of as often as is required by duty and the circumstances of human life. But when the reason is strongly cultivated, the imagination may safely follow its own end and do its best to make life pleasant and lovely inside the castle, in reliance on the fortifications raised and maintained by reason round the outward bounds. On these principles it appears to me that the indulgence of hope with regard to the government of the universe and the destiny of man after death, while we recognize as a clear truth that we have no ground for more than a hope, is legitimate and philosophically defensible. The beneficial effect of such a hope is far from trifling. It makes life and human nature a far greater thing to the feelings and gives greater strength as well as greater solemnity to all the sentiments which are awakened in us by our fellow-creatures and by mankind at large. It allays the sense that irony of nature, which is so painfully felt when we see the exertions and sacrifices of life culminating in the formation of a wise and noble mind, only to disappear from the world when the time has just arrived at which the world seems about to begin reaping the benefit of it. The truth that life is short and art is long is from of old one of the most discouraging parts of our condition. This hope admits the possibility that the art employed in improving and beautifying the soul itself may avail for good in some other life, even when seemingly useless for this. But the benefit consists less in the presence of any specific hope than in the enlargement of the general scale of the feelings, the loftier aspirations being no longer in the same degree checked and kept down by a sense of the insignificance of human life, by the disastrous feeling of not worth while. The gain obtained in the increased inducement to cultivate the improvement of character up to the end of life 
is obvious without being specified. There is another and a most important exercise of imagination which, in the past and present, has been kept up principally by means of religious belief and which is infinitely precious to mankind, so much so that human excellence greatly depends upon the sufficiency of the provision made for it. This consists of the familiarity of the imagination with the conception of a morally perfect being, and the habit of taking the approbation of such a being as the norma or standard to which to refer and by which to regulate our own characters and lives. This idealization of our standard of excellence in a person is quite possible, even when that person is conceived as merely imaginary. But religion, since the birth of Christianity, has inculcated the belief that our highest conceptions of combined wisdom and goodness exist in the concrete of a living being who has his eyes on us and cares for our good. Though the darkest and most corrupt periods of Christianity has raised this torch on high, has kept this object of veneration and imitation before the eyes of man. True, the image of perfection has been most imperfect and in many respects, a perverting and corrupting one, not only from the low moral ideas of the times, but from the mass of moral contradictions which the deluded worshipper was compelled to swallow by the supposed necessity for contemplating the good principle with the possession of infinite power. But it is one of the most universal, as well as the most surprising characteristics of human nature, and one of the most speaking proofs of the low stage to which the reason of mankind at large has ever yet advanced, that they are capable of overlooking any amount of either moral or intellectual contradictions, and receiving into their minds propositions utterly inconsistent with one another, not only without being shocked by the contradiction, but without preventing both the contradictory beliefs from producing a part at least of their natural consequences of the mind. Pious men and women have gone on ascribing to God particular acts and a general course of will and conduct incompatible with even the most ordinary and limited conception of moral goodness, and have had their own ideas of morality in many important particulars, totally warped and distorted, and notwithstanding this, have continued to conceive their God as clothed with all the attributes of the highest ideal goodness which their state of mind enabled them to conceive, and have had their aspirations toward goodness stimulated and encouraged by that conception. And it cannot be questioned that the undoubting belief of the real existence of a being who realizes our own best ideas of perfection and of our being in the hands of that being as the ruler of the universe gives an increase of force to these feelings beyond what they can receive from reference to a merely ideal conception. This particular advantage it is not possible for those to enjoy 
who take a rational view of the nature and amount of the evidence for the existence and attributes of the Creator. On the other hand, they are not encumbered with the moral contradictions which beset every form of religion which aims at justifying in a moral point of view the whole government of the world. They are, therefore, enabled to form a far truer and more consistent conception of ideal goodness than is possible to any one who thinks it necessary to find ideal goodness in an omnipotent ruler of the world. The power of the Creator, once recognized as limited, there is nothing to disprove the supposition that His goodness is complete, and that the ideally perfect character in whose likeness we should wish to form ourselves, and to those supposed appropriation we refer our actions, may have a real existence in a being to whom we owe all such good as we enjoy. Above all, the most valuable part of the effect on the character which Christianity has produced by holding up a divine person, a standard of excellence, and a model of for imitation, is available even to the absolute unbeliever, and can never more be lost to humanity. For it is Christ, rather than God, whom Christianity has held up to believers as the pattern of perfection for humanity. It is the God incarnate, more than the God of the Jews or of nature, who, being idealized, has taken so great and salutary a hold on the modern mind. And whatever else may be taken away from us by rational criticism, Christ is still left, a unique figure, not more unlike all his precursors than all his followers, even those who had the direct benefit of his personal teaching. It is of no use to say that Christ, as exhibited in the Gospels, is not historical, and that we know not how much of what is admirable has been superadded by the tradition of his followers. The tradition of followers suffices to insert any number of marvels, and may have inserted all the miracles which he is reputed to have wrought. But who among his disciples, or among their proselytes, was capable of inventing the sayings ascribed to Jesus, or of imagining the life and character revealed in the Gospels? Certainly not the fishermen of Galilee, as certainly not St. Paul, whose character and idiosyncrasies were of a totally different sort, still less the early Christian writers, in whom nothing is more evident than that the good which was in them was all derived, as they always professed, that it was derived from the higher source. What could be added and interpolated by a disciple, we may see in the mystical parts of the Gospel of St. John, matter imported from Philo and the Alexandrian Platonists, and put into the mouth of the Saviour in long speeches about himself, such as the other Gospels contain not the slightest vestige of, though pretended to have been delivered on occasions of the deepest interest, and when his principal followers were all present, most prominently at the Last Supper. The East was full of men who could have stolen any quantity of this poor stuff, 
as the multitudinous oriental sects of Gnostics afterwards did. But about the life and sayings of Jesus, there is a stamp of personal originality combined with profundity of insight, which, if we abandon the idle expectation of finding scientific precision where something very different was aimed at, must place the prophet of Nazareth, even in the estimation of those who have no belief in his inspiration, in the very first rank of the men of sublime genius of whom our species can boast. When this preeminent genius is combined with the qualities of probably the greatest moral reformer and martyr to that mission who ever existed upon earth, Religion cannot be said to have made a bad choice in pitching on this man as the ideal representative and guide of humanity. Nor, even now, would it be easy, even for an unbeliever, to find a better translation of the rule of virtue from the abstract into the concrete than to endeavor so to live that Christ would approve our life. When to this we add that to the conception of the rational skeptic, it remains a possibility that Christ actually was what he supposed himself to be. Not God, for he never made the smallest pretension to that character, and would probably have thought such a pretension as blasphemous, as it seemed to the men who condemned him. But a man charged with a special, express, and unique commission from God to lead mankind to truth and virtue. We may well conclude that the inferences of religion on the character which will remain after rational criticism has done its utmost against the evidences of religion are well worth preserving, and that what they lack in direct strength as compared with those of a firmer belief is more than compensated by the greater truth and rectitude of the morality they sanction. Impressions such as these, though not in themselves amounting to what can properly be called a religion, seem to me excellently fitted to aid and fortify that real, though purely human religion, which sometimes calls itself the religion of humanity, and sometimes that of duty. To the other inducements for cultivating a religious devotion to our welfare and our fellow creatures as an obligatory limit to every selfish aim, and an end for the direct promotion of which no sacrifice can be too great, it superadds the feeling that in making this the rule of our life, we may be cooperating with the unseen being to whom we owe all that is enjoyable in life. One elevated feeling this form of religious idea admits of, which is not open to those who believe in the omnipotence of the good principle in the universe, the feeling of helping God, of requiting the good he has given by a voluntary cooperation which he, not being omnipotent, really needs, and by which a somewhat nearer approach may be made to the fulfillment of his purposes. The conditions of human existence are highly favorable to the growth of such a feeling, inasmuch as a battle is constantly going on, in which the humblest human creature is not incapable of taking some part, 
between the powers of good and those of evil, and in which every, even the smallest, help to the right side has its value in promoting the very slow and often almost insensible progress by which good is gradually gaining ground from evil, yet gaining it so visibly at considerable intervals as to promise the very distant but not uncertain final victory of good. To do something during life, on even the humblest scale, if nothing more is within reach, towards bringing this consummation ever so little nearer, is the most animating and invigorating thought which can inspire a human creature, and that it is destined, with or without supernatural sanctions, to be the religion of the future, I cannot entertain a doubt. But it appears to me that supernatural hopes, and the degree and kind in which what I have called rational skepticism, does not refuse to sanction them, may still contribute not a little to give to this religion its due ascendancy over the human mind. End of Theism, Section 9 Recorded by hearhis.com End of Three Essays on Religion by John Stuart Mill